Well, again, welcome everyone. Um, allow me just to say once again that I'm very thankful for your presence here. I know seven o'clock class, it's a long day, a lot going on, and to come learn is, um, it takes discipline and it takes a lot of effort, and I appreciate that. And again, I hope not to disappoint. So class last week, it was an effort to mind the gap, so to speak, uh, to acknowledge and to come to terms with that sometimes vast and uncomfortable difference uh, uh, between, or distance rather, between the way the early church read the scriptures and the way we, the modern church, uh, read the scriptures. So how many of you guys were left kind of thinking about that this week? Was it kind of in your mind? Yeah? Is the distance get any easier, or do you feel more comfortable with it, less comfortable with it? Uh, what are your thoughts? I don't understand how Origen could even think that. Okay, great. So Tom thinks, or mystified by Origen's mystical reading. Tyler? Okay. Marriage problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, good. So we're getting, I wanted to get some more skeptical opinions on it. I really did because, I mean, that's the goal. So, all right, you guys kind of, Tyler, you were more positive last time having talked about it less positive, a little bit more temperate on it. Okay, that's fair. Anybody swing the other way? Did anyone go negative, positive? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. It's, it's, it's very strange, very foreign. And I think the sort of uncomfortability is only the natural response. Tom? I'm not aware of Origin's background or anything, but I'm assuming that Origin would have been pretty good Yeah, so Origen, we'll talk a little bit about how he interprets the scripture. Um, we Obviously, we're not, it's not a class on Origen, but I will treat a little bit of how he addresses it. And yeah, for him, the Holy Spirit, it begins and ends with the Holy Spirit. And yeah, so he's, Origen's very a spiritual figure, and that's kind of what gives him the justification for what he's up to. Okay, so that's a little bit of how we felt, uh, a little positive probably a little bit more negative, and that's fine. And so what I attempted to do was just make an impartial, uh, present it to you impartially, Uh, not to make any judgments, but simply state the facts. This is what Origen's up to. This is what John Calvin's up to. Origen represents the older way of reading, which was the norm, and Calvin, by and large, represents the modern way of reading. And that continues tonight, right, that sort of impartiality. Our aim in this class, um, as you can see in the paper before you, is to trace the historical development of biblical interpretation from the church's earliest years, from a figure like Origen, to where we find ourselves today, where that feels very strange to us. Now, to do this might seem like a digression, right? Um, Like we're 
we're, we don't necessarily need to go here. Um, but I think it's essential for the coming weeks um, where what we're going to do next week and the following week are make an assessment on the modern and the ancient interpretive methods. Now, it's essential, right, that we do this here because it puts things in the proper framework. Um, when you're able to kind of see the development, and it helps you to, I think, understand things a little bit better. Hey, gentlemen, let me get you guys some papers. Anyway, the point of history, right, is you can see the whole picture, and you can see where you're at in the picture. And it's like the map, right? You are here, and you can kind of see how things have developed. And what it enables us to do is kind of take a step back and to make more objective judgments one way or the other, right? Um, so that's the purpose of what we're trying to do here. And again, the aim is not so much to provide the historical survey for its own sake, but instead to zero in on the turning points in biblical interpretation, right? Not just, hey, this is what happened, but here's kind of how it developed. Here's how things changed to get to where we are today. So that's what we're going to do is bypass these areas of continuity, right, and minor development, and zero in more on these areas of um, upheaval and change um, to see how we end up where we are now. So we'll spend the most of our class a little bit later talking about the time from the late Middle Ages onward. That's when there's a ton of development. So the place to start is with uh, patristic exegesis. I don't even know what that word means, patristic, but it's what the books tell me. So we start in the patristic period, or better known as the time of the church fathers, right? And this time frame, it spans somewhere from around the time of the last apostle, uh, the apostle John, to somewhere around the 4th century. Um, some have that date even later. For our purposes, the time frame, however, is not so important as are the central figures who inhabit that time frame. And among the central figures, there is one preeminent figure among the church fathers, and that's Origen. Now, for better or for worse, Origen set the tone for biblical interpretation for the coming centuries. So either the church fathers were following Origen, kind of taking a page out of his book and doing what he was doing, or, as we'll see, they were reacting against Origen. And before considering what Origen is up to in his reading of scriptures, of the scriptures, and thankfully we've already had a taste, um, we need to know that regardless of what we think about what Origen is doing, he understands himself, and this is really important, as carrying on the apostolic tradition. Origen understands himself as the successor, not as an apostle, but as the, or a successor, of the apostle's way of reading the scriptures. So before diving into his spiritual interpretation, in his book, or rather in his commentary on Exodus, he says this, let us cultivate, therefore, the seeds of spiritual understanding received from the blessed Apostle Paul. Right Now, that's obviously a very quick statement, but it's one among many for Origen, where he likens, whether it's legitimate, le legitimate or not, his reading practice with the apostolic reading practice. So he says, let's cultivate 
the spiritual seeds of understanding received from the Apostle Paul. So Origen, we'll see in a little bit, he'll make his appeal to a passage like 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle says, speaking of the Exodus generation, these things happen to them figuratively or happen to them typologically, depending on what translation you have. Or he'll point to a passage like Galatians chapter 4, where the Apostle explicitly says, and this is allegorically speaking, where he takes the events of the birth of Isaac and the birth of Ishmael, and he interprets them allegorically. So Origen points to that as justification for what he's doing. And again, the point right now is not whether he's right or not, but simply how he understands himself as someone carrying on the legacy of the apostles. Okay? Now, this is virtually recognized. Um, Craig Carter, in his big book on interpretation, says, One of the main characteristics of patristic exegesis was a confidence that the apostles themselves model biblical interpretation for us in the way they interpret the Old Testament. The fathers considered themselves to be faithful followers of the apostles who were teaching what the risen Lord taught them. Right? So, from the apostles to Origen, there's a continuity. We'll decide what we think about it later. And this interpretive framework that the church fathers said to receive from the apostles, mainly the apostle Paul, is the framework of the letter and the spirit. Okay, Or you could frame it another way of history and the spirit. And they based it off the apostles' words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where the apostle Paul says, The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So the letter, according to the church fathers, is the historical meaning of the scripture, i.e. what happened, right? And the spirit, on the other hand, is the deeper mystical meaning of the passage, right? So they said that's what the apostle Paul was doing, and that's what we're doing. Now, Origen, he takes that twofold system of letter and spirit, and he subdivides the spirit into two distinct categories. So you could see a little bit of what, the, uh, what Origen was up to. So you have the Apostle Paul, letter and spirit, and then you have Origen. And he associates the letter with the body of Scripture, and he says that's the literal, historical meaning of the Scripture. And then under spirit, he subdivides it. And now you have the soul of Scripture meaning the moral meaning of the Scripture, and then you have the Spirit, meaning the mystical meaning of Scripture. Any, any questions about what Origen is doing? At least we could see the division, right? Okay, so let's... Go ahead. Uh, so he's about one... I think it's about 180 um, to... He died pretty early. He was a martyr... Something of a martyr. So it's like, I think it was like 240 or 250. Don't quote me on it, but it's in that time frame. So he's fairly early. The only church father that has an earlier influence and a bigger influence than Origen is probably um, Irenaeus. But Origen, for the most part, is the, the kind of the big figure in that first century after the apostles. So you see what he's doing, right? Now, let's hear his explanation. One must therefore portray the meaning of the sacred writing in a threefold way upon one's soul, 
So he says, if you're going to read the scripture, you, have, you should read it in this threefold way. So that the simple man may be edified by what we may call the flesh of the scripture. This name being given to the obvious interpretation. While the man who has made some progress may be edified by its soul, as it were. The man who, and the man who is perfect may be edified by the spiritual law, which has, and he quotes Hebrews 10, a shadow of the good things to come. For just as man consists of body, soul, and spirit, so in the same way does the scripture, which has been prepared by God, to be given, to man, be given for man's salvation. So, let's break that down a little bit. As human beings consist of body, soul, and spirit, so too, Origen argues, does the scripture. Its body, that is the flesh of scripture, is its literal historical meaning. Its soul, he says, is the moral meaning of the passage. And lastly, the scripture's spirit corresponds to its highest mystical meaning. Now, this seems very you know, elaborate and maybe something that Origen is fabricating, but he appeals to the scripture to make his case for this uh, threefold division. And first, he appeals to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for his justification. Verses 9 and 10, um, you can see them there on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul here. So he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. So that's the Old Testament law, right? Um, while the ox is threshing, while it's doing its work, don't muzzle it, allow it to eat. So here's how the Apostle Paul interprets that passage. He says, God is not concerned about um, oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. So you see what the Apostle is doing there. He takes the passage literal sense, that pertains to an actual ox, and no one argues that. And he interprets it as referring to us. He says, it was written for our sake. God's not so concerned about the oxen as he is about us. So, Origen points out, there is another sense of the passage, according to the Apostle Paul's interpretation, that doesn't refer to the ox. It doesn't refer to something spiritual, but to something moral, right? Something moral, and that moral is if a pastor is going to do the work of the pastoral ministry, he should be paid for it, or at least he can be paid for it, is what he's saying. So, it's a spiritual move that the Apostle Paul makes there, right? He takes the passage about an ox, and he says it applies to pastors, right? He spiritualizes it, however we understand that. But it's a distinctly moral move, right? There's a moral sense to the passage. And so on that basis... Origen introduces a distinct moral sense within the spiritual sense, which he calls the sense of the soul. So you see it again there. There's the Apostle Paul, it was one, and then Origen says, well, in fact, there's something else there, the moral part. Now, the spiritual sense of the passage, he grounds again in the Apostle Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 10. And I encourage you um, to kind of read that passage and come to your own understanding of it because we'll talk about it a lot in the weeks to come. But there, what the apostle does is he takes the very literal manna and the very literal water from the rock rock in the Exodus narrative, 
right? Again, the Israelites have nothing to eat, so God rains down manna from heaven. Um, They have nothing to drink, so he tells Moses to go strike the rock, and it'll pour out water for the people. And what the Apostle Paul does in that passage is he spiritualizes those elements, and he calls the water that they drank a spiritual drink, and he calls the bread that they ate, the manna, spiritual food. Not only that, he calls it the same spiritual food that we eat and the same spiritual drink that we drink. So what the apostle does there is he, uh, however you want to frame it, you call it spiritual interpretation, you call it mystical, whatever, allegorical. What he's doing is taking the elements of the Old Testament, specifically the manna and the water, and he likens them, more so makes a one-to-one correspondence between the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper, the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink. And the apostles' point there is that if God judged the children of Israel, even though they shared the same spiritual blessings that we do, will he not also judge us? And he says, yes, he will. So don't do what they did, right? Everything happened to them as examples figuratively for us. So you see what Origen's doing. He says there's the moral, the spiritual, and again, he's not, he's not free-willing it. He finds justification for this in Scripture. Now, Origen also provides a deeper spiritual, uh, steeper, steeper, deeper grounding rather for the spiritual sense, and he points to the incarnation. As Christ is a human, a human flesh united to the divine Word, so also the Scripture has a spiritual sense united to the literal sense. But that's you know he goes off into another direction at that point. So, any questions about what Origen is doing before we sort of shift gears here? Do you at least understand what he's doing? Maybe don't agree with it, but understand what he's up to. Yes? Nodding heads? Okay. So that sets the tone, right? All the church fathers more or less follow Origen's method. You read it, you're going to find this stuff everywhere. Now, Origen is not as free-willing as some may have made him out to be. But that said, he's not without his detractors. Uh, particularly in Antioch. The Antioch school of interpretation was concerned primarily with the perceived um, excess of Origen's mystical interpretation. So if Origen emphasized the hidden spiritual meaning of the scripture, the Antioch school, with figures like John Christosom, emphasized the historical literal sense. All right, so they kind of arise as a balance to what Origen is doing. Now, Diodor of Tarsus, he was probably the most vocal figure against what Origen was doing. And his concern was that allegory, the way it was being practiced, had come to undermine the literal sense of the scripture. Now, for us, right, as modern Protestants, um, we have much the same discontent with allegory. Right, that it disregards the literal sense. And, and typically when someone like makes a critique against allegory, that's where they go. Well, that's not what the passage is saying. And people expressed that last week, right? That kind of like, well, where are you getting that from? And doesn't that undermine what you know, the plain meaning of the scripture says? So it aligns with kind of where we're at. But we shouldn't impose our current situation onto the history. Because we 
Protestants typically reject allegory out of hand. Just say, like, that's not, we don't do that. And if every preaching book that I've ever read basically says the same thing. You know, they point to Origen, they point to Augustine and say, don't follow them. That's out of bounds. But that's not what the Antioch school was up to, right? They were more strict in their application than Origen was. Um, but it remained spiritual interpretation, a legitimate method of interpretation. So I want you to hear what Diodor himself says. He says, We treat the text historically and literally and um, not stand in the way of a spiritual and more elevated insight. The historical sense, in fact, is not in opposition to the more elevated sense. On the contrary, it proves to be the basis and foundation of the more elevated meanings. One thing alone must be guarded against, however, never let the discernment process be seen as an overthrow of the underlying sense, since this would no longer be discernment, but allegory. What is arrived at in defiance of the content is not discernment, but allegory. The apostle, in fact, never overturned the historical sense by introducing discernment, despite calling discernment allegory. So there's some confusing difference in terminology, but his point is clear. It's not the deeper, more elevated reasonings that he's opposed to, um, but certain readings that overthrow the underlying sense or the literal sense of the passage, right? So this would be like free-willing allegory. Remember I used that example of one of the popes who went to Genesis 1 and he said that I'm the sun, which is the great light to rule the day, and the secular rulers are the moon, which is the light that rules the night. And as the moon reflects the light of the sun, so you receive your authority from me and not the other way around. Now, I think we all recognize that's an example of pure allegory that overturns the literal meaning of the passage. Now, that stuff was happening. Um, you see, if you find it in origin, um, I tend to think in the passages that I showed you, he's not doing that. But in other passages, I think it's pretty clear that's what he is doing. Um, so you have that kind of thing. And that's what Diodor is uh, reacting against. So he proves, and the school of Antioch does, to be a healthy counterbalance to Origen's method or certain tendencies in Origen's method. Now, Origen, uh, the school of Antioch, you kind of see the picture there. It's a horribly oversimplified view of things, but it encapsulates both ends of the spectrum. All the church fathers acknowledged a historical sense to the scripture, right? Um, no one really undermined that. And all the church fathers acknowledged a spiritual sense to the scripture. However, they varied in their application. Some tended to be more conservative. I mentioned John Christossom. He was one who was kind of skittish about some of the things that Origen was doing. His sermons are great, but he still does, you know, allegorical reading. So he's more conservative. Others like Origen, uh, maybe Cyril of Jerusalem, a diff- three different figures are much more um, profuse in their use of allegory. So any questions about the patristic period? What do we think about them? Joy.
Yeah, so my view on that is twofold. One, um, and we'll, we'll see this toward the end of the lecture, is we're, we're, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Basically, anything new is better than anything that was old, which uh, he was pointing out the, the, uh, the understanding of our time, right? That's just basically how we view things. Um, so based on that, I like to have a healthy dose of old, right? Because it kind of, it kind of challenges our presuppositions about things. Now, on the other side, the, uh, the nearness to the apostles, I think there's something that has to be said for that. Um, now, it's a little different the further down the line you get, right? So, like, there's a document called the Didache, right? That is basically contemporary with some of the New Testament documents or a letter like uh, uh, something from Polycarp or something from Clement, which are just literally decades after the apostles. Now, those aren't scripture, but they should hold a lot of weight as giving us some understanding of what was going on there. And so I do generally to put a lot of, not a lot, but more uh, weight on that. Like, I don't think they can be ignored, right, just because, oh, they were primitive. No, they were really right there next to the apostles, so I think something does have to be said for that. Okay, so any other questions about the patristic period? Fairly straightforward. I just want you guys to see where we're at, and then you'll see the developments as we go. So let's move now to the medieval period. We're, we're jumping vast swaths of time here. Now, the medieval period stands in great continuity with the age of the church fathers. Um, theirs is a story of reception and refinement, right? It's not a lot of change that's, be, that's happening. And though he's not a medieval figure, Augustine will be our main conversation partner for no other reason that his influence upon the medieval church cannot be overstated, right? His impact on, you know, from his death to even now as Protestants, Calvin, Luther, all of them appealed to Augustine to make their point. So he's a huge influence on all of this stuff. And again, as he did in many other areas, he made his mark on biblical interpretation. So uh, I want to begin with his words on Christian teaching. That's the name of his book, On Christian Teaching. He says this, and I love this. I really, really love this. He says, so anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by this understanding build upon this double love of God and neighbor. So he appeals to the first and second greatest commandment. So he says, um, let me backtrack. Who cannot build, uh, who cannot by this understanding build upon this double love of God and neighbor has not succeeded in understanding them, the scriptures. Anyone who derives from them an idea which is useful for supporting this love but fails to say what the writers demonstrably, demonstrably meant in the passage has not made a fatal error and is certainly not a liar. So Augustine, though a theological genius of the highest order, is concerned less with knowledge for its own sake than he is with love. Um, he says any proper reading of Scripture ought to lead to the fulfillment of the two greatest commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. And if it doesn't, he says, then it's missed the mark. A reading, however sophisticated, or rather however unsophisticated and elementary, that nevertheless arrives at love, is a preferable reading 
to a passage or to an interpretation, however lofty, that does not. So let's say one so sublime in its theological inside, but it doesn't lead us to love. He says, well, we should take the other one because it points us to love of God and love of neighbor. And of course, Augustine's rationale for that comes from 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is the greatest thing. And if I have, if I speak with the tongues of angels, um, if I do all these great works, but I don't have love, I have nothing. So that's where he's getting this from. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, there are three things in that passage that abide. Uh, Faith, hope, and love. Those are the three virtues, the greatest things of the Christian life. While lesser things, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, lesser things like prophecy or tongues or knowledge will be done away with in the age to come, right? So remember he says, um, we see now through a mirror dimly or through a glass dimly. It's obscure, right? And uh, then we'll see face to face. So when we see face to face, when I know as I am known, then we won't need tongues or prophecy or knowledge or any of those things because we'll be perfected in love. So what Augustine does, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a brilliant intuitive move, is he associates, he associates prophecy and knowledge which are destined to pass away with the scriptures themselves. Their function, that is the scriptures, is to train us in faith, hope, and love. And when that goal has been reached in heaven, right, when each one of us stands before Christ, made into the likeness of his image, the scriptures will no longer be needed. One, because we'll be like Christ, and two, because the scriptures are only useful to the extent that they point us to Christ. He's the goal. So once we have the goal, the means will have passed away. So the scriptures, Augustine says, are a means, not an end, right? Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish, but to fulfill. And he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away or pass away before the heavens, something along those lines, right? But in the age to come, we're only going to have the word of Jesus Christ. That's Augustine's view. Now, crucially, and we don't want to miss this, he develops this into something of an interpretive theory. If the scripture's purpose is to mature us in faith, hope, and love, then all interpretation must finally be ordered to that, to that end. In other words, a proper reading of Scripture ought to bolster us in faith, provoke us in love, and encourage us in hope. That's always the goal. Now, Augustine leaves us hanging there. He doesn't develop that much further. I mean, it's, I think it's a brilliant insight, but he doesn't really carry it on in his life, and he kind of falls back a lot on this twofold division. Uh, of a little bit of what Origen was doing in the past. He doesn't take it any further. But Augustine's inheritors, the medieval uh, church, they did. Um, And what they did was take Augustine's insight, faith, hope, and love, and they turned that into basically a method for interpreting Scripture, and it's called the quadriga. The quadriga, I think I have it there for you on the paper. Um, Yeah, the quadriga. Now, we don't know about the origins of the Quadriga, where it came from, who started it. Um, It's traced back to various figures, but the Greek word just means four horses, and it refers to the four-horse chariot of Rome that the Caesar would ride on. He'd come in with his four horses, and it became a method, or it became a a word used to refer to the four senses of Scripture. Um, So let's explain what's going on here. The church fathers 
understood the apostles to be operating, let me show you the slide here, on a two-level distinction of letter and spirit. Origen subdivided the spirit to make a three-level distinction, body, soul, and spirit. And the medieval church, built on Origen's framework, and got, and also Augustine's, the literal historical sense of the passage, the tropological sense, that just means the uh, moral sense, right? That's what corresponds to Origen there. Now, instead of the moral sense, it's the sense that has to do with love, right? And it refers to what we're supposed to do. Uh, And then the allegorical sense, which refers to what we're supposed to believe, what we're supposed to have faith in. And then the analogical sense, which refers to hope. So you see those three virtues, faith, hope, love, which basically turned into a method for reading the Scripture. So we can summarize. Um, If you guys need me to come back to this, let me know. We can summarize uh, in this little poetic verse that comes to us from an anonymous Dominican monk. He says, The letter teaches what happened, the allegory what you should believe, the tropology what you should do, and the anagogy what you should hope. So the letter of the scripture says, this is what happened. David killed Goliath. The allegory teaches what you should believe, i.e. that it points to Christ. The tropology, what you should do. The anagogy, what you should hope. We'll talk about that later. So Augustine's influence on how this developed is pretty clear. So we have the literal sense of the scripture. Within that, the spiritual sense, which is now subdivided into three headings, faith, hope, and love, or allegory, anagogy, and tropology. Um, does anyone need me to explain those? I have a big section here about going into them, but I don't want to waste time. That makes sense? Is it pretty intuitive? What do you guys think about what's going on there? How do you feel about faith, hope, love, and that being turned into an interpretive method, essentially? Um. I'm convinced it does, yes. Yes. Yeah, I am convinced it does. I think it might be harder to get there. And I think maybe some passages, like, you know, it's a stretch to get to hope. But I think every passage has one of those that you can draw some meaning. And that was the conviction they had. And that's how they read the Old Testament and what led to the typology and allegory that they were up to. Tyler. Sure. It makes, the, it makes the letters, makes the, the word almost like come alive in itself. Like, it gives it more of a room to grow. Sure. But in a safe way. Mm-hmm. With, all, with, the, with how they kept on adding on and mixing it up. And, uh, that, that's that kind of yeah. Yeah, okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Sure. But I guess if the apostles don't start to read it, it starts getting more and more. Right. That's where I'm like, eh, you know. Yes. That's, but I, I do believe that, but the more 
Okay, yeah. So, okay, we're we're building on that unjustly, right? So, just as a devil's advocate, I think what they would say is that, well, everything we're doing is based off of scripture. So it's not we're not the method might look different, but we're still pulling it from scripture. So I think that would be the defense. But very many people have had the same sort of thought, like uh, this feels like we're adding on to something that we shouldn't have. Any other questions, Tom? And I think you're exactly right there. So when we, we'll move now to the early modern period, and you'll see what the reformers were doing was like, okay, we're 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 overdoing this, and we need to we need to cool it is essentially their message, um, because well, yeah, you'll hear what Calvin and Martin Luther have to say for themselves on that matter, but it was very much the same sort of uh, train of thought. Is there any, any other questions to ask about that, Mike? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'll do it for you right now. Um, okay, so Lot, he, he, he's the wavering back and forth Christian. He's saved. New Testament calls him righteous. They're, that's his type, right? Uh, his, his wife, uh, well, it doesn't give her a name. She, uh, she's not a believer because she's behind Lot, and she gets turned into what? A pillar of salt. Sodom is a type of judgment. I've already covered that in one of the past teachings. So already then, you have, if you just take it as a type of judgment, we're already dealing with hope. Uh, Even then, we're already dealing with faith. The angels come and save them, so you can make that connection pretty easy. And then do, run for your life. Uh, Judgment, you know, flee God's judgment and, you know, run to, even the cities they go to, um, I can't think of the actual Hebrew names, but they just, it's so full of this typological suggestions. Origins reading on Exodus, on uh, on the on the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's it's awesome. I love it. But yeah, he doesn't use those three categories though. But I think he could if you know, and it wouldn't be a distortion. Yeah, and if you get yeah, you're yeah, you're right there. So when we do the Old Testament survey, you'll see how Sodom and Gomorrah, how that story functions in in the Old Testament as a type of judgment. So yeah, and then what we'll do in uh, after, so we'll do the historical critical method, then we'll go to the ancient one, and then we'll try to put it into practice in the story of David and Goliath. And uh, I mean, it preaches. So early modern exegesis, that's where we're at now. Um, This period spans roughly from the 15th century to the 18th century, depending on who you ask. Now, during this time is when things begin to really change. And we can trace this change um, to some extent back to the humanist movement. So if you guys kind of know just a little bit of the history of the time, um, we can specifically trace it back to the phrase ad fontes. Uh, Anybody know meaning? Ad fontes. It means back to the sources. It's a Renaissance sort of uh, catchphrase. Now, again, the period this 15th to 18th century, is marked chiefly by the desire of the Renaissance to return to the classical texts of ancient Greece and Rome in their original languages, right? So they were moving on from Latin, and they were getting back to 
the original Greek, and they were getting back to the original texts of people like Plato and Socrates and Cicero, who are basically, in secular terms, the foundation of Western civilization. So back to the sources, right? They want to go back to where we started. And this humanist movement, it swept late medieval Europe. And don't, don't think humanist and think bad. Think humanist and think good. What they were doing was, was, I mean, it was revolutionary. But quite naturally, the humanist movement, it left its mark on biblical interpretation. Now, this is a pretty negative statement from the book, but I included it just because I think it, it captures um, what was going on at the time, even if we don't want to like follow along with how cynical a view it is. This is Keith Staglin in his uh, History of Biblical Interpretation. He says, The increased attention to historical context, that's the back-to-the-sources part of it, would lead to greater emphasis on human authorial intention as the central task, or central to the exegetical task, and thus also to the de-emphasis on spiritual interpretation, obviously not present in the human author. As these humanist approaches came to dominate, the sacred scripture would gradually be treated more and more like a text to be scientifically dissected than a divine revelation to be contemplated and heeded. So again, you see his own view coming out. But what I want you to see is that this back to the sources, it kind of led to, okay, let's do that with the Bible. Let's get back to the sources of the Bible. So there's a return to the Hebrew like there wasn't ever before. There was a return to the history of the time, right? Uh, into the archaeology of the time. All this stuff began to bloom during the late medieval or early modern period. And what it led to was uh, a new understanding of how to read the scripture. So this sacred, you know, this uh, mystical reading kind of began to fall out of favor because now people said, well, what we want to uncover is what the author originally meant in his original context to his original writers. Uh, So there's this whole new uh, movement. And part of the shift and, and this is just the, the facts, is that the Bible moves away from a primary place within the church, and it starts getting moved into the academy more and more. Um, so, again, those humanist uh, university techniques that were used to study Plato and Socrates were also put to the Bible, right? The same sort of, used, uh, the same sort of methods were used. Again, that's why Staglin says in that statement, the sacred scripture would gradually be treated more and more like a text to be scientifically dissected, right? So there is a shift there, and and that has to be acknowledged of uh, how the scripture is viewed. Now, that's not entirely a bad thing. I'll explain. Actually, in many respects, it had quite positive developments. Standard elements that we recognize today about biblical interpretation, again, an emphasis on biblical languages, Right? I, I try to, as much as I can, uh, glean from those who do know the Hebrew and the Greek to kind of bolster up what I'm saying. Um, stuff like the historical context, the history of the time, um, literary criticism, kind of figuring out, uh, taking a critical eye toward the construction of the text. Um, all those different things, they came into their own during this period. And so here what we recognize as biblical interpretation begins to take shape. And a leading figure in 
this new approach to Scripture was Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he really is a, uh, a, an awesome figure in church history. He was the first to take these methods of textual criticism and apply them to the Scriptures. He was highly criticized for it. People, it was insanely controversial when he did it, but he was right. So you guys know the scribal error in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 7, right? Where there are three that bear witness in heaven. Um, and it's even a controversy today, right, in, in, uh, in certain uh, denominations. He was the first one to go into the original language to look at the different texts and say, hold on, this was added. This isn't original. And then he took it out. And he said, in his own translation, he said, actually, this is what the text says. And it was very controversial. He was highly attacked for it, but he was right. And he did that in a lot of different areas. Um, so this ad fontes, back to the sources, helped to show where we deviated from the sources. Oh, this was an addition by a scribe. This was, um, you know, the John chapter 8 passage or the Mark um, 16 passage that we recognize today as not being there in the original text. All that started in this period. However, Erasmus, as a leading figure of this uh, to the sources uh, movement, he never abandoned the spiritual interpretation of Scripture. So he says this and. Uh, one of his writings, which I can't pronounce. He says, I notice that modern theologians are too willing to stick, stick to the letter and give their attention to the sophistic subtle, subtleties rather than to the elucida- elucidation of the mysteries. So basically saying, like, we're too stuck on the letter. We need to get to the mysteries. And he says, like, a story like Jacob and Esau, of, of, of Jacob grabbing Esau's hill, um, the hill grabber, his name, he says, that story me, it, it is no value to us unless we interpret it according to the spiritual interpretation. So he'll say stuff like that. So to cut a long story short for this uh, early modern period, and mainly to kind of bypass all the incredibly uh, dense details of the Reformation, eventually this to-the-sources attitude, along with other factors, as we've already noted, led to a de-emphasis of the spiritual interpretation. So we're starting to leave that behind. And the thing that's valued now more than allegorical meanings, more than mystical meanings, more than any of that, is the historical sense and the authorial intent. So what we want to know now is not some sort of like, what can you find in the passage? But what we want to know now is what did the author mean to his original audience? How would they have understood it? So that's a massive shift, right? Huge shift in the way we read Scripture. Now, this movement can be seen probably most clearly in Martin Luther. He was a monk in the medieval period who obviously started the Reformation. And he vehemently criticized how the Scripture was being interpreted in his time. He explicitly rejected the quadriga, right, Uh, uh, the faith, hope, and love. He says that, um, well, He mocks the four senses of Scripture by which, he says, unlettered monks and scholastic doctors misinterpreted almost every word of Scripture, right? So he's like, they're going way off the rails. And to greater or lesser extent, depending on who you read, he was right. The Catholic Church, as we all know, was hideously corrupted, and the priests and monks and popes all misused the spiritual sense to justify their behavior. And of course, the Bible wasn't in the hands of commoners at that time, right? It, it wasn't even in their language. The, the whole Latin, the mass was in Latin. I mean, they couldn't even understand it. So, of course, they could 
do with it whatever they wanted. And so also part of Luther's critique was that many meanings made for no meanings. You got so many, you know, piling on of these things that now we don't have any meaning. Yet we also find in Luther's writings, and I've lately been reading more of his messages preparing alongside my own, and you see in various places that he resorts to something like a spiritual sense. So he says in the passage of Galatians, it's very fine once the foundation has been properly laid and the case has been firmly established to add some kind of allegory. And you see he does that in his own interpretation, how he'll take uh, a particular Old Testament passage, um, namely, and interpret it according to some form of allegory. So he rejects the quadriga, but he maintains that there is still some allegorical purchase within the scriptures. Again, Keith Staglin, he, I think he sums it up well. He says, Luther passed on to Protestants a legacy of rejecting the quadriga and deriding allegory, but at the same time retaining the use of spiritual senses that go beyond the mere letter. As such, early Protestants developed various strategies for pulling off this new, sometimes precarious balance between the rejection and the retention of spiritual interpretation. So Calvin, alongside Luther, is the other spearhead of the Reformation. And he maintains a similar line. Um, Along with Luther, he levels a devastating critique of allegory. In his commentary on Galatians, uh, he says, But as the apostle declares that these things are allegorized, Origen and many others along with him have seized the occasion of torturing Scripture in every possible manner, away from the true sense. They concluded that the literal sense is too mean and poor, and that under the outer bark of the letter there lurk deeper mysteries, which cannot be extracted but by beating out allegories. And this they had no difficulty in accomplishing, for speculation which appeared to be ingenious have always been preferred and always will be preferred by the world to solid doctrine. All right, that's, that's I mean, that's as devastating as it can be. Um, and again, in a lot of senses, he's right. It was being misused. But you can also see in that statement, I don't know if you guys have any experience at a Presbyterian church or if you've heard Presbyterian preachers, he says, we're getting rid of all that stuff and we want a solid doctrine. Have you ever listened to R.C. Sproul, right? You think my sermons are like too doctrinal? Listen to R.C. Sproul. Like that's, that's a Calvinist thing, like doctrine, give me doctrine, not this nonsense. Um, that's where it comes from. So Calvin rejects allegory, at least the kind that Origen practiced, or I would say the kind that he thinks Origen practiced, and he proceeds to make room for another kind of allegory, one that the apostle practiced, because no one can deny that that's what the apostle's doing there. And we can make the, the, the further statement, maybe we're not supposed to do that, but he can because he's apostle, but we'll come to that next class. So anyway, you see what Calvin's doing. So he maintains something of a, of a spiritual meaning as well, and we'll see this in just a minute. But where Calvin differs from Luther is in his more humanist tendencies. Um, Calvin was a lawyer. He was a trained scholar. He was, you know, he was a genius. And he brought all that to the scriptures. And uh, in his reading of the commentaries, if you maybe want to go back and read um, the homework from last week on Calvin, you'll see that the modern method, it's all there. He has a concern for the original language, for the historical context, for textual criticism, where Origen does none of that stuff. 
Anyway, long story short, Calvin doesn't sever his interpretive roots in ancient soil. Um, I want you to hear how one author sums up the whole Reformation period and what uh, Martin Luther and what John Calvin were trying to do with their new interpretation. He says, The Reformation shares more continuity with medieval hermeneutics than previously thought. The Reformers did not jettison the theological instincts at work in the quadrigus construal of the literal sense for the sake of starting over on a wholly new foundation. It's more helpful to think of the magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin as reformers of the medieval quadriga rather than revolutionaries in the modern political sense. So essentially, rather than abolishing the spiritual sense of Scripture, Luther and Calvin sought to rein it in, right? Kind of a little bit like what Tyler was saying, kind of bring it back in and give it some rooting. That's what they were up to. So here's the slide now, what it looks like. Um, you'll see this corresponding to your, um, on your paper. It's very tiny, sorry. Uh, now, instead of under the spirit, right, instead of this distinct category, it's all subsumed under the literal sense of the scripture. And again, what it says there is with typological and Christological meaning and spiritual application. So all that now is located under the passage literal sense. So now... What Martin Luther and Calvin are doing is saying, okay, that stuff's not illegitimate. We're controlling it. They, 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 uh, they gave the boss his power back, essentially, the literal sense. That controls everything now. Um, okay. Any questions there before we move on? How do you feel about what the reformers did? Do you guys agree with it? Was it the right move? Was it the wrong move? What's your thoughts? Okay, sure. All right. Um, Mike? Totally eliminating it, not a good thing, is, what, is your thought. Okay. Anybody else? Don't be shy. Did it actually do the job? Did it actually do the job? Yeah. Or did it maybe take away from some of those categories because they made the literal everything? Right. So everything has to be interpreted in a sense through the literal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that allegory in those other categories, that was meant to be. Yes. You know, because the allegory to me is like you're painting a picture, you're telling a story to relay a truth. Yes. Well, we'll see in these, uh, the, this next section, which is the last one, um, and I'll breeze through it, how, um, well, the consequences of that, what, what did it end up turning into. Tom? Sure. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, again, I think what Origen would say is that Paul did letter and spirit. We're not adding. That's already in there implicitly. We're just clarifying, I think is what he would say, and what the medieval interpreters would say. 
Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's this is a, a a point I'll make later in the class is that um, this works for narrative. It doesn't work for the Apostle Paul's letter when he says that uh, God demonstrates His love for us um, in this, you know, sending His Son to die for us while we we're yet sinners. Um, there's no allegorical interpretation there. That's that's the deepest you can go, and you don't need to go any deeper. So it applies specifically to narrative, which is most of the Old Testament, and still a huge chunk of the New Testament. Yeah? You know, that's all pre, pre-Christ. You know, the Jews were expected to know the time of his arrival, and they didn't. Right. They think if they would have been able to read the Bible like the apostles did, they would have... They would have known. known. Well, read, read Luke 24. Right, yeah, once the, once the reality has come, we don't need the shadows anymore, right? We don't, we don't need allegory. And, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is good. We're, this is the kind of discussion we want. Anybody want to add to that? Jim. Yes. What you just said, literally. But if you have a mindset that this is the only correct way of interpreting, then you have to check that box within that interpretation. I even see, I, I even see that in Spurgeon. You know, yeah. He was so, his, his motive was wonderful. Mm-hmm. He wanted everything which he showed us. Yeah, about Christ. Christ mm-hmm. Yes. I love where he landed. Yes. I think he landed in a better place than Calvin did. Yes. But because he was so, it has to end here, that affected the interpretation. Yeah. And if you just read it as literature, the literature itself, the reading of itself, I think, screams how you should interpret it. Yes. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yes, because it is. Like, if you confine yourself, this is the way it is, then you, you've narrowed your field of vision immensely, whether that's in a more modern sense or in an ancient sense. Like, you're tied to that, and those are your goggles, and you can't take them off. So, yeah, I agree with that. that that's actually a really great statement. And we'll see kind of what, ultimately, what I'm wanting to argue for is kind of the best of all all of what we've learned from in the past and kind of how can we plunder all of it and use it for our benefit. So any questions about what's going on here? All right, let's keep moving, um, and I will get you guys out of here at a decent time. 
This is our last historical period. I didn't even give it a, 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 a time stamp. It's the historical critical exegesis. Um, and it's after, anytime after the Reformation to now, okay? Um, so in the Reformation period, in contrast to the Catholic insistence that Scripture needed a magisterium, that is the Pope or the councils, to rightly interpret the Scripture, Protestants um, developed the doctrine of Scripture's perspicuity. Has anyone ever heard the doctrine of perspicuity? Okay, well, essentially what it is, is that although there may be obscure passages in the Scripture, of course we all recognize that, it's crystal clear about everything that we need to believe um, and do in order for salvation, right? It's clear about those things. So that was Calvin and Martin Brucer and, um, to some extent, other figures who came up with a doctrine of perspicuity. And on a popular level, it translates to something like this. We don't need the Pope. We don't need the councils. We don't need the traditions to tell us what Scripture says because it's obvious what Scripture says, right? It's clear. It's on the page there. We can understand it. Now, I like the doctrine of perspicuity. I think I, think I agree with that in a, in a modified sense. It's a good thing. But the doctrine of perspicuity was pushed to its limits under the Enlightenment influence, right? So Renaissance turned into Enlightenment, and we all know about the Enlightenment. Benedict Spinoza, you guys have probably heard the name, he stands out as the key figure during this time. And what he did was make human reason the final arbiter of biblical interpretation, So we can see this movement, right, that was started in the late medieval period, even before the Reformation, carried on through the Reformation, then now past the Reformation is getting carried to greater lengths of extremity. So he says the only thing we need to read Scripture is human reason. Here's what he says. The rule of biblical interpretation must be nothing more than the natural light of reason which is common to all men and not some light above nature or or any external authority. So here's the reason why Spinoza was very keen on saying, all you need is your own human reason. You don't need the church. You don't need tradition. Because he, he had political motives. He wanted to free, uh, I think it was the Dutch Republic. I might be wrong about that. One of the Scandinavian countries um, from the external corrupting influence of church tradition, theology, and even faith. Right? He wanted to, we don't need those things. We just need our reason. So in this sense... He's going way beyond the Reformers. Um, And to rightly understand the Scriptures, again, we don't really even need uh, an understanding of biblical interpretation, Spinoza would say. I mean, a biblical inspiration, rather, um, that it's inspired. He's like, all we need is unprejudiced reason. So Kevin Van Hooser, here's how he describes what Spinoza's up to. He says, "...whereas medieval scholars believed that faith was the key to unlocking the meaning of Scripture..." And by medieval, he would include Calvin and uh, Martin Luther as well. He says, The tendency of modern biblical scholars is to think that faith is either unnecessary or actually impedes the historical scientific investigation of the biblical text. The ideal exegete on this view is the historian. So if you really want to understand the passage, you need to free yourself from the shackles of theology, of church tradition, even faith, and you just need to be a good historian and get to the bottom of what the author meant to his original audience. So we can see Spinoza's influence on 
the modern way of reading the scripture. Again, it's called the historical critical method of reading the scripture. And it's come into its own in our day. So the key to understanding the text, again, is human reason aided by the tools of historical reconstruction. So now those more ancient concerns of the text, namely the spiritual sense, those are gone. Those have receded into the background. And Spinoza says now that it's the life, character, and particular interest of the author of each individual book, who exactly he was, on what occasion he wrote, and for whom, and in what language. That's what matters now, right? And we see, in Spinoza's words, what we're all taught at the very beginning. Figure out what he meant in the original language to his original audience, and kind of figure out the historical situation, and when you do that, then you can arrive safely at the meaning of the passage. Hence, what Van Hooser says, the ideal exegete, in other words, the ideal interpreter, is the historian, right? That's the best interpreter now. So, biblical interpretation at this point is a matter of reconstructing the past. So, let's look now at our complete slide. We've seen all the movement, the reformers reduced it to the literal sense, and then the Enlightenment thinkers reduced it even further to only the literal sense understood as what the author meant at the time. So any other spiritual meanings, entirely illegitimate. They don't matter because that's not what the author meant. And he couldn't have meant them unless stated explicitly. So as you see there, in order to fully understand the text, scholars need to pursue the history behind the text and how it influences and so on and so forth. Um, So let's read a quote here. Again, Keith Staglin sums up. In order to fully understand the text, scholars had to pursue the history behind the materials that came to constitute the Bible. The execution of these and related assumptions in biblical interpretation is what is meant by historical, critical, or modern exegesis. Human authorial intent is the goal, and it can be discovered through the means of philological analysis and research into historical backgrounds and context. So here, what we see happening, something I lament, is the biblical text and theology beginning to divide. So basically what the church, the historic church doctrine, it's not an aid to interpret the text, right? It's not like a help. What have the Father said? Now it's an impediment. We don't need them. What we need is what the Bible says. Um, And they're actually, they hurt us in that process. We don't, we have to wait to hear them till much later in the process. And I agree with that to a certain extent. Anyway, um, that drive goes further. So we see the Bible being separated from its moorings, tradition, uh, theology, that kind of thing. Now, this leads to um, something that we might call the Bible-only movement. Um, So what started by Spinoza and carried along by others then comes to now the Bible-only. And it starts this Bible-only movement with the rapid multiplication of denominations. The interpretive anarchy um, in the wake of the Reformation, and and really that's what it was, all these new understandings you got, all the denominations that start springing up, um, it put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, particularly a man named Alexander Campbell. He's an American pastor theologian. And of the wranglings of denominations, um, he writes this. 
He says, they all take from the Bible such parts as suit their respective theories. They also select from the fathers and from the tradition certain other parts of their systems. And that, Now listen, here's the Bible only part. We profess to take the whole Bible and nothing from the sects, nor from the fathers. Nothing discovered by any man that has ever lived since John wrote the Apocalypse is of any virtue in religion, nay, indeed, is no part or parcel of Christianity. So there's that division even further. And it comes from a good spot, what Alexander Campbell is saying here. These denominations, they all come from, he says, man's thoughts. And so to restore unity, all we need to do is jettison man's thoughts. Get rid of the fathers, get rid of the tradition. Let's all just go back to the scripture, and then we can agree on what it says, because we're all coming with these preloaded assumptions. So, again, that movement that began in Europe it reaches a fever pitch in the United States. And again, Staglin writes in his book, American Christianity tended to be ahistorical in every respect, not least in biblical exegesis. So it was like, okay, it's the new world, right? We're leaving the shackles of the old world behind, and, and there was an ahistorical sort of uh, spirit about it. So having dispensed of the old forms, Campbell seeks agreement in a unity uh, and, and unity in a mode of common interpretation. So let's get rid of all that other junk, and let's just have one method to read the scriptures. If we have that one method, it'll bring unity. He says, Great unanimity has obtained in most sciences in consequence of the adoption of certain rules of analysis and synthesis. For all who work by the same rules come to the same conclusions. And may it not be possible that in this divine science of religion there may yet be a very great degree of unanimity of sentiment and uniformity in practice amongst all who acknowledge its divine authority. So Campbell says, if we get the right biblical approach and we all read that, we'll come to unity. And that approach, he says, is to read the Bible like any other book. So all this other stuff, right, all these fancy methods of the quadrigo, all that other stuff, we don't need that. Just read it like any other book. We've messed up the whole interpretive enterprise. It doesn't need to be so complicated. If we do this right, we'll be as one. So what Alexander Campbell initiated, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Jewett, I don't know his name, he carried it forward. He says, or rather his resounding motto, we'll get to that in a minute, is to interpret the scriptures like any other book. So what he says, and I have it in your homework this week if you want to read that, um, his method is says, just read the Bible like you'd read Plato or any other ancient writer. Um, the same method ought to be used. So now the quote, he says, No other science of hermeneutics is possible but an inductive one. That is to say, one based on the language and thoughts of the, of the sacred writers. So that ancient construal um, to the four levels of the text is gone, and even the version that the reformers had is gone, and now what you have is this. Scripture has one meaning the meaning which it had in the mind of the prophet or the evangelist who first uttered or first uttered or wrote. The interpreter is to place himself as nearly as possible in the position of the sacred writer. That is no easy task. The true use of interpretation is to get rid of interpretation and to leave us alone in the company in company with the author. So what Campbell started is pushed to its logical end. And what the Reformation called Scripture alone, um, meaning that it's the highest authority, right? They still had church tradition. They still held on to the church fathers. 
Scripture alone as the sole authority, or as the, I'm sorry, not as the sole authority, but as the main authority, the norming authority, is now becomes Scripture as the only authority. None of that stuff counts in any way. Again, Jowett says, the history of Christendom is nothing to the interpreter. All afterthoughts of theology are nothing to him. So the thing is, what their interpreted, their move to bring unity did was bring actually more disunity. It produced more schism. Um, the denominations kept on their paths, and now it's just everybody is his own interpreter, right? I don't, I don't need any of that. And so now what you just have is each man has a hat under a church under his own hat. And then this leads, and I'll be very quick here, to where we find ourselves today. Um, reason, where Spinoza said, that's all you need, that gets pushed even further. And so now it gets turned against the scriptures. Uh, supernatural elements, well, we know those can't happen because that's what our reason tells us. So any supernatural elements in the scripture, Jesus' miracles, the miracles of the Old Testament, we know those are later additions to the original stories. So what we got to do is get behind the text, right? We can't really trust what's being reported to us in the Gospels, because we know Jesus obviously couldn't have done those things. So we need to kind of get behind the layers of tradition, of mythology, and get to, tell me if you've heard this phrase, the historical Jesus, right? In modern scholarship, there's this, there you have the, the Christ, or the, yeah, the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. So the Christ of faith is the one who we believe, and they would say, wrongly, because reason, of course, why, why would you believe any of that stuff? Virgin birth, resurrection, that's crazy. Um, but what they do, they find the, the historical Jesus, and so they kind of dissect the New Testament. Mike, you're very familiar with Bart Erdman. That's exactly what he's doing. Um, modern commentaries, there's a whole lot of this stuff. You'd be so surprised of where they're just, you know, you basically have unbelievers who are writing these, you know, sets of commentary, so on and so forth. That's a bad landing to this lecture, but it's getting a little bit late. Um, but you see kind of the development. Um, let me open it up just for questions on this last one. I'll say a few words about homework next week. Jeannie. Yes. Yeah, but so think about the assumptions, though, how, how much this is bled into the assumptions about how we interpret the text. I mean, faithful, faithful men better than I could ever hope to be, when they write their books about preaching, it's essentially that. What you need to find is what the author meant, and that's, that's it. That's the goal. And, you know, when I first taught the Gospel of Luke centuries ago now, 
I, I didn't, I was looking for like an inter, I was, I don't know, I landed there. And my sermons were really bad. They were so tied to history that it was like, I don't know, I just felt really uncomfortable now looking back at them because I had like uncritically just swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. But I totally agree with you, Jeannie. And what we're going to do next week is take a look at the historical critical method because that's the method of the day. And we're going to consider its strengths, and there are some, and they're really strengths. There really are. But there's also some severe weaknesses. And Jeannie, you could teach the class next week if you want. I mean, that was, that was right on point. Anybody else um, on where we're at now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's part of the Enlightenment inheritance, right, that, that I think is too, too firmly rooted in, in uh, a misunderstanding of reason. Liz? Sure. Yeah. That, and and these are these are the first two in, initial ones that we'll, we will absolutely get to that. And you know, just to comment on something you said that f- for me, part of the reason why I initially found an attraction to these more ancient ways of reading because I found that they were reverent toward the scripture in a way that kind of just and I'm not putting this on anyone but myself that I had just picked up, you know, and 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 you know reading those things from origin, regardless of what he does, it's like, oh my goodness, this guy quakes before the word of God, you know, and it's, uh, it's it, that part of it, the, the holiness, the sacredness of it, man, that really started to fire me up again. Uh, Jim.
Yeah. And and that's that that's what that sort of that that relying on reason so much like you were saying, Jeannie, it puts you as the interpreter above the scripture. You're the one scrutinizing the text rather than the reverse, right? And so when people make their um well we'll see this next week, the critique, it's very much in that department where there's not that sort of like you said, the, the reverence. Dad, what were you gonna say? Sure. If I wrote that book, there's so much in there that we got no clue. Right. Everybody's going to be wrong on parts, whether it's origins, version, whoever. Yeah. We're just, we're just human beings. And there, there's no way you're going to get scripture right. I mean, yeah. look at Benny Hinn. He drills a cover around and everybody's here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Yep, that's very true. It's just, yeah, well, origin would agree. Yeah. Yes. So, so, uh, uh, well, you said two things. One, like Origen would compare the scripture. He says it's a giant mansion and you've got the key and go look in every door, go, you know, that's kind of was his metaphor. And then you, you basically landed where Augustine did. He says like, listen, if you, if it leads you to the love of God and the love of neighbor and it's not patently false, it's a solid interpretation, and we shouldn't cut people down for that kind of thing because that's what the Scriptures aim towards. Now, there's a, a, a sense in which you want to, you know, okay, like, I love God more because I believe Jesus isn't, you know, the Son of God, then we've got issues, but generally speaking. Anybody else? Joey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so limiting it to, you know, the, the love, the faith, hope, and love is, is still tame compared to the love that we do. Yes, and I think what Calvin um, and Luther were doing, if I had to land somewhere, I would probably want to straddle the line between them and the quadruga, because I think you can get really crazy with it, but that literal sense control, that helps. Man, that helps, because you just can't, you know, you can't get into any craziness and say, oh, you know, well, I'll point this out later, but like there were some who said like, you know, the the 10 cheeses that David brought to his brothers on the battlefield where the Philistines were, they said that represents the commandments. And uh, I forget how many loaves of bread, but they say that's the Trinity, right? And it's like that kind of thing. You're like, okay, we're pushing it, right? We're pushing it. But it, it I, I, that story, we'll get to it. I think it's loaded with 
you know, incredible Christological meaning and insight for us. So, any other questions? Uh, uh, Ty. And the scripture loses its meaning for us. Yeah. Yeah. Except as history. This is God's word to me, a spiritual text. Yes. And, and the whole point of this lecture was to kind of get us to that point, was to realize, like, okay, I said I'm being objective, right? But let me play my hand here. Um, to get us to realize, like, okay, our modern method, though it has many strengths, that is its great weakness. And just like Jim was saying earlier, have others expressed the same sentiment, I think that's exactly right. Scripture becomes not God's word to me, but it's God's word to me, only recoverable through history. And not that those things don't matter, but you get what I'm saying. Very similar to what Jeannie said. Yes, honey. That's a great insight because, so one of the quotes that I'll mention next week is what we've done, you know, we've traded spiritual speculation for historical speculation. Like, we can't recover history with the sort of accuracy that we think we can. Like, it's lost in time. Like, you you just can't get into the mind of the Apostle Paul or whoever or go back even further to Moses. Like, we can get kind of close in some circumstances, but a lot of it is speculation. And we're just psychoanalyzing a man that, you know, we just, we have no basis for that. So we've changed, like you said, one Bible only, spiritual, for the other Bible only, historical. And you get the same sort of incredible multiplication of meanings on both sides. That's a great observation. Jim, I'll go to you and then Jeannie, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up. Jim? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that's the point. Like, it's like, you know, if we can just expose ourselves to different things, it's, it, it really does help us better navigate our time. Jeannie.
<laughs> and I'll, yeah, and I'll mention that next week. I mean, you have, even within Protestant interpretation, various camps of uh, this is what it was like in Jesus' time. No, this is what it was like. No, this is what it was like. And each one significantly changes how you would approach the text. Like, and, and, and I mean, yeah, so, so all that is there. So, guys, what I have done is, uh, you don't have to do it, um, is the, I sent out an email, um, and basically the Benjamin Jowett guy that I mentioned earlier, his, uh, his uh, essay in the late 1800s was like the, 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 the landmark essay for authorial intent as the one meaning of Scripture. So there's that in there. Um, it's a little long. It's a little 18th century wordy, 19th century wordy, but if you can, go ahead and read that. And then there's a more modern one by uh, David Steinmetz, and he basically argues for the old view. And it's just interesting to see them arguing back and forth. I don't agree with either of them entirely, and Steinmetz has some, he has some views that you know, make me cringe about what he talks about Scripture, but it would be a helpful exercise if you'd like to to kind of compare and contrast there. So that'll be in your inboxes here in just a few minutes. Let me say a quick prayer, and we'll wrap up.